Thank you. You may have a seat. Welcome to the Orchard. This is uh, Mountain Fair weekend. I've got my uh, tie-dye shirt all ready to go over after this service and be on the, uh, what is it, the green team. I did Peace Patrol yesterday. Some of you I had to call down, so I'm glad to see you here today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is the order of those three things? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. What's the order of that? That's close. That's close. As you think about it, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you have already and are ongoing loving yourself. Loving yourself is the second thing. Before you can love your neighbor adequately. In fact, I'm going to ask you to do something kind of silly, kind of like in kids' church. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to do a little motion here that you'll be able to take home and use at home with no one getting hurt. We're going to do three things. Love the Lord your God. Just raise your hands like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor. Just spread your arms. Look around. Don't have to touch anybody. As you love yourself, hug yourself. Which one of those is the hardest to feel right about? This is awkward, right? (laughs) Okay, now we're going to do it in order. Love the Lord your God. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As you receive his love for you and you love yourself, so then you can love your neighbors. All right, have a seat. That wasn't too hard, was it? And you can try that at home. It's important to remember the order. If you try to love your neighbors without loving yourself, it's not going to work well. (laughs) It could end really bad. Love the Lord your God. When Jesus first spoke those words, he was quoting from, you know, Deuteronomy. The Jewish people in the Torah, they knew, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he added something to it they didn't expect. I can't find in any of my studies where anyone had put these together before. And Jesus said, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. We all know that the first one came from Deuteronomy. Where on earth did he pluck the second one from, if not Leviticus 22? In a, in a bad neighborhood. He put them together, and he, in fact, after that, he said, uh, all the law and prophets hang on these two. They had asked him which commandment's the most important. They were looking for him to name one of the 613 that would be most important. He summarized. He said, if you do these two, Love your Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself, you will fulfill all the rest of the 613. Because everything hangs on those two. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when he spoke those words, it was countercultural and counterintuitive. Even to the Jewish people, they had diminished loving God to obeying God. Rather than, do you know the difference between love and obey? What does love feel like? What does obedience do? They had diminished love to obeying God's laws. And you ask a Pharisee, do you love God? Well, I obey the laws. And they 
probably were not very close to God at all. And so when Jesus said, love God, not just obey, it was shocking to them. And then he added, love your neighbors yourself, which they didn't like at all. But in the Roman world, there were no lovable gods. I mean, they lived on Mount Olympus, kind of distant, always in a bad mood, fighting with one another. The very best thing you would want with one of the Roman or Greek gods is not to be noticed. Because if you were noticed by Zeus or by Jupiter or some of those gods, then you were disturbing the force and they would rain lightning down on you. There were no lovable gods. I mean, the Jewish people had lost that concept of loving God, lovable God. There weren't lovable gods in Jesus' day. This was revolutionary. Now, in our day and time, we think, well, it's not so revolutionary. Everybody knows God loves. That's God's job. And yet, when you think about it, if I were to ask you, and this is very pertinent, what is your idea of what God is like? If you were to close your eyes and try to picture God, what would you see? Now, that's okay to do that because God calls upon us to employ our imagination when it comes to our faith. Not just our reason, not just our feelings, but our imagination. What do you see when you close your eyes and you try to think, what do I see God like? For most people, kind of a fuzzy picture, not in focus. may look kind of like the outline of some tall guy with a beard. But for a lot of people, there's no nothing personal about it at all. It's like an impersonal force. No personality, nothing to love. In fact, for some people, it's gotten to the point where they would tell you, if you believe it hard enough, the universe will bring it to you. You try to snuggle up to a universe? Oh, no. You see, when Jesus spoke these words, they were shocking in his time. They're shocking in our time because we're talking about a, listen to this, a lovable God who is loving. Kind of changes the focus a little bit, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God. Who is this lovable God? This God is our heavenly Father. Not the universe not some distant abstract God on top of a mountain. He is our heavenly Father. Now that makes it relational. That makes you a son, makes you a daughter. Heavenly Father. Do you feel like snuggling up against, snuggling up in the arms of your heavenly Father? Do you think about that? What do you think about when you think of your heavenly Father? Unfortunately for some of us, we didn't have all that good of an experience growing up. And we think of heavenly Father, we think of this. You're always messing up. I'm disappointed in you. Or this. Or leaving. A lot of our categories for Father have been tarnished because of our earthly experience. But God, your Heavenly Father, wants to heal that category. So that when you think of Father, Heavenly Father, you've got the warm fuzzies. You can trust. You know there's care. You know he loves you. In fact, Jesus Christ went so far as to say in John, well, let's go John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That would not be said about the God of any other religion or any of other philosophy. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross 
to forgive us our sins. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We think eternal life. Oh, that's heaven somewhere by and by. No. Eternal life is a who, not a what. Jesus said in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not a what. It's not a length. It's a who. It's knowing your heavenly, knowing and loving your heavenly Father. So your heavenly Father, in that equation, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're loving not a thing. You're loving your heavenly Father. So let's see if we can focus in a little bit on that image of God that you have in your imagination. Now, sometimes we think imagination, oh, Doug, that's, that's a new age. We shouldn't be doing that. Well, if that's wrong for me, it's wrong for King David. He wrote the 23rd Psalm. It's a meditation and imagination about the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah is the shepherd. Are you kidding me? He was taking from the first five books of the Bible the nature of God and putting it into his context when he was a shepherd taking care of sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. He opened the door for, and it is right and fair for us to use our imagination in our spiritual growth. Christians have avoided it. We use our reason, not very often feelings, never imagination, but you use imagination for everything else. When you worry, do you worry like you're seeing words typed on a page, or do you see in vivid color your next failure coming up? You use your imagination and worry. It's not a matter of whether or not you use it. How about employing it in the service of your Christian growth? We use our imagination when we think about people who've misspoken or mistreated us. We go over it in our mind. It hurts. We go over it. So we come back with seeing in our mind, our imagination, us telling that other person off or maybe letting that person have it. We use our imagination all the time, except when it comes to the Bible and comes to God. Then we, no, I want to reinvigorate your imagination so you can see your heavenly father. So that when you praise God and you lift your hands to God, it's not just a nebulous concept. It's a person. It's your heavenly father. Now, David gave us permission in the 23rd Psalm to see God as a good shepherd. And so I'm going to ask you to enter into a time of medi biblical meditation using the first couple of lines of the 23rd Psalm. I want you to think about a meadow, beautiful green meadow somewhere, anywhere you want. Maybe you've been there. Maybe it's just imaginary. But I want you to imagine beautiful green meadow, sunshine, slight breeze, grass is weaving. I want you to look around. Maybe there's a, a creek over to the side, some trees around. Look around until you find the shepherd. Look left, look right, look around. And now you found the shepherd. Where is the shepherd from your position? Is he far off? Close up? In between? What is the shepherd doing? Is he busy, engaged in something and not paying attention to you? Or is he giving you his attention? 
I want you to see in your mind's eye the shepherd turn toward you. Facing you now. Coming closer. What expression do you see on the shepherd's face? Biblically, if you keep your imagination lined up on the track of Scripture, you will see a smile of delight on the good shepherd's face because you are one of his favorites. Listen, listen. He's going to say something to you. What does the good shepherd say to you? Listen. I hope that you had a pleasant meditation. A lot of times with people in crowds or one-on-one in counseling, it's so difficult sometimes for people to even find the shepherd. And often when they find him, they cannot see his face clearly or distinctly enough to make out an expression. And often when they see an expression, it's not favorable. It's not pleasant. But you see, it's so important for us to bend our imagination, bend our mind to run on the tracks of Scripture. If your imagination tells you that God is distant and displeased with you, your imagination's out of whack. Because God's Word tells us that God loves you. Your Father loves you. Jesus died for you. He is close to you. It is well with our soul because our eyes are on Him, right? We sing the words. Let's live those words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll go over to love your neighbor. How do we treat people around us? We say love God, love people. How do we treat them? Well, oftentimes we treat everyone, we're civil, we're pleasant, we're polite. Is that love? Is that what God intended? And who's the neighbor? In the Jewish time that Jesus spoke, they had, they had defined neighbor down to a very narrow definition. And neighbor meant, to the Pharisees, a righteous, right-living Pharisee. That's my neighbor. That's the one I love. Anyone outside of that, I don't have to love. I'm not called to love those people. Now, you remember when someone questioned Jesus about this uh, love God, love your neighbors yourself. He said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told a story, remember? He told a story about a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Thieves caught him, beat him up, stripped him, left him for dead. Two Jewish leaders came by, walked to the other side of the road, and then came along a dreaded, hated, despised Samaritan, came to the man, cleaned his wounds, picked him up, put him on his donkey, took him to the hotel, paid for his care. And Jesus said, who's, who's the neighbor? Jesus exploded the box, bam, to the farthest reaches of hatred. That's a neighbor too. Now, how about you? You've got your tribe, you've got your people, you've got people you like. But how about those people who disagree with you. How about people whose behavior is counter to your values? Jesus said, love those people too. What does love mean? Well, you put them on your donkey. Take care of them. You take care of people in need, even those that you hate, those you despise, those who don't like you. Would that be noteworthy in this world if we, as orchard people, loved 
those who disagree with us rather than judge them. They're used to that. If we loved them, if we took care of their needs. So loving your neighbor in, as Jesus meant this didn't mean a small little piece of, of, of humanity. It meant the wide world. Love your neighbor. How are we usually when we walk into a room of people we don't really know? We're judgmental. If we walk into a room of people we don't know, we can line them up from left to right. Unacceptable, acceptable. Unapproved, approved. And where am I in there? Somewhere, you know, not too high, not too low. I resent the people above. I don't like the people below. We judge people because, and here's the deal, because of our insecurity. Well, come on, Doug. Now you're talking to church people, Christians. You can't actually believe that Christians are insecure. Well, how can you tell if you're insecure? You can tell you're insecure not having a solid identity or a solid sense of value and worth if you have regard for how other people might be thinking about you or treat you or whether or not they approve of you. Insecurity means is that your security, your self-worth, your value, your identity is floating on the market as a target for people to either uphold or knock down. Well, we do it ourselves. We tend to knock others down and prop ourselves up. I'm better than that person because they did this or they didn't do that. That second part, love God, love yourself, is where often insecurity and doubt and accusations dwell. And so we can never really get out to this part because we're so concerned with concealing this part that might not be acceptable around other people. And so this insecurity that we feel as you love yourself, it's not arrogance. Let me put it this way. When you're by yourself and you find yourself having thoughts coming through your mind, are they positive or negative? Are they like, you are an incredible person? Wow, nobody does that like you? Oh, you're looking good today? Or are those thoughts coming through, oh, you messed up again. You'll never do anything. Hey, wait, that's my mother's voice. You'll never do anything right. Negative voices, accusations put us down. We put ourselves down. We don't love ourselves because we don't feel lovable. And the truth of the matter is that I can't love other people more than I love myself. Because I don't know how to do it. I have no frame of reference. I mean, it starts with loving me, and if I can't love me, how am I going to love other people unless it's just a surface-level show? I can't love others any more than I love myself, and I can't let others love me more than I love myself. You ever been around people that especially are you want them to know that you love them and they repel it, they will not accept it because they can't love, they can't let you love them any more than they love themselves. It's a self-governing limitation. 
can't do that. How do we overcome insecurity and have a bomb-proof sense of security and value and worth in this world that's always trying to tear it away? In my mind, action, behavior, attitudes of others, where do I find it? There's only one source that cannot be altered by a world's circumstances, and that is God. You see, this life is vertical. If I spend all my time on the vertical level seeking to be loved and wondering if I'm loved and getting rejected and protecting myself, but if I go first here, loving my, loving my lovable Heavenly Father and receiving His love, then my value, my worth, my security increases to the point where I can adequately love others. And it's very easy to show you this, to demonstrate. A uh, two- or three-year-old kid comes running up like this. Mommy, mommy, daddy, what do they want? What do they want? Pick up, up, up is the next thing. All right, so a two- or three-year-old child comes, mommy, daddy, up, and the next words are, I love you. What is the parent feeling? What's the parent going to do? Well, you go to your room. <laughs> Remember last week? No. A parent whose child comes up, arms up, I love you, is going to scoop that child up, hold that child in his or her arms, and just radiate, radiate love into that child's face with that expression, the words, I love you, you're so precious, the smile, the acceptance, the approval, everything is right there to that child who says, I love you, mommy, daddy, up. You see, there's a transaction when you properly, righteously love your lovable heavenly father. That transaction is that you are picked up and you are held and your face is there next to his smiling face of assurance and approval, and you are drinking it in. You're absorbing it. And as you do, you understand you're a person of value, that you have undeniable, unassailable worth, that your identity is as a beloved son or a beloved daughter. You get that bomb-proof because you've been receiving it from your heavenly Father. And that way, when you go out, you are standing to love others as a secure person, secure in who you are, and, and you, you are loved, and you've got something to give to this world. Not like this as someone who's not really sure about my worth or value. In fact, I think if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. I can't love. But if I know I have value and worth, I can love other people. How does God really feel about you? How does your heavenly Father see you? Regardless of what that child had done, two, three-year-old comes up, mommy, daddy, up, I love you. Oh, that mom, that dad is just showering that baby 
with all kinds of love. Let's go to the Bible, and let's see if we can find an index, a description of God's love for us, of how much he loves us. Many of you remember, many of you remember Steve White, who uh, now, well, he just had a birthday. He's in Phoenix. He's now in a home-assisted uh, living with dementia. But he's one of my best friends. And uh, we would go camping a lot and uh, hang around and be with guys and do kinds of things. Now, he was not a seminary-trained theologian. He was a uh, national sales trainer for Culligan Water. He was highly respected. He went around the country training salespeople for Culligan. If he didn't do his job, Culligan didn't do well. He'd lose his job. He was highly respected until he began to lose his mental faculties. But before that, I remember him. We'd sit around the campfire. He'd have his Bible open. He's reading his Bible. I read mine too, but I'm a professional Christian. I'm supposed to read mine. He, he's reading his Bible. And he looked at me one time and he said, Do you know God loves you as much as he loves Jesus? Now, I've been in seminary. I hadn't heard that. It sounded a little bit like blasphemy. I said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, God loves you like he loves Jesus. I said, Steve, Jesus is God's son. Jesus gave his life. Of course he loves Jesus. He turned me to John 17, verse 23, which says, Father, in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. Our unity tells the world that God sent Jesus. And have loved them even as you have loved them. There it is. You've loved them. Believers, even as you have loved me, do you feel as if God the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus? It's hard to feel. I mean, that's hard to, hard to uh, accept and absorb, isn't it? But that's, again, where we need to let our imagination track with the Scripture reality. If your imagination, if your idea and your concept says that God barely loves you and tolerates you, and maybe because you believed in Jesus, he'll let you in heaven. You're, you're out of whack. If you are like this, your imagination, your uh, beliefs, your faith, your theology, God loves me like he loves Jesus, bam, you're right on. Your heavenly Father loves you, delights in you, looks upon you with delight. Now, I put some scripture verses at the bottom of the sermon study sheet where you can dig in deeper into this understanding that God loves you so much. I'm going to read one of those from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And this first one is verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. See, Jesus died for you on your worst day. Not the day you got cleaned up and came to church. Yeah, that too. But he died for you while we're still sinners. 
God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see those? You see those now as words on a screen, obviously. Can you close your eyes and see those in a video of God demonstrating his love for you? And while you were yet doing the stuff that you shouldn't be doing, Jesus gave his life for you. You see, it's very important that we make a meal of Scripture, not just a verbiage. If you've been to a Mexican restaurant, I love going there, because they've got pictures of the food on the menu, right? And you see it, oh, and you're looking at it, oh, this looks so great. And you point to it, you say, oh, I like these uh, nachos and uh, those enchiladas. And you point and you feel it menu, and then you get up and walk out. Man, that was a great meal. Are you kidding me? That's the way most people read the Bible. (laughs) We don't get it into us. We just notice it. We just cognitively look at it. But when you go to a Mexican food restaurant, and you go in there and you point to those, and they bring them out, that's the meal, right? Now we're talking, now we're shoveling it in, and we walk out, whoa, that was a great meal. Gives us strength, gives strength to ourselves. And it's the same way with the Bible. But God demonstrates his own love to us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. If that just remains a concept, a picture on a menu, then it doesn't nourish you. It's important to dive in to the Bible, to what it says, to use your imagination, to picture, to study it from all different ways around. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, I mean, sorry, Paul says, our hope in him doesn't disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In your imagination, can you see something like Niagara Falls? Except for water. It's not water. It's God's love. And can you see your heart at the bottom as a receptacle receiving his love being poured out into your heart? Can you, you, can see, you can see that as I describe it, right? That's what you do when you read the Bible. You see what it means. When you're singing worship songs, you see what they mean. You interact with your lovable Heavenly Father because he loves you. And he wants to pick you up and hold you until you are assured of your value and your worth and your lovability and your approval in Christ and your identity as a beloved. And then he can put you down to go play because now you can play well with others. You can share because there's plenty more where that came from. And then in 2 Corinthians We're told, remember a moment ago we were uh, meditating on the Good Shepherd and how we see the Good Shepherd? I don't know what it was like for you, the last scene that you saw. I don't know if the shepherd was close, far. I don't know whether his face was frowning or smiling. I don't know what he said to you. But you need to focus on that until you can bend your imagination so that you see the good shepherd coming to you with a smile on his face, reaching his hand out to caress you, telling you, I love you, rubbing salve on those wounds that you've caused yourself by wandering off, holding you to. That's where you need to go for that, by the way. And you wrestle your imagination down until it gets there. 
Because it's your imagination. You can make it see whatever you want. Let's get it lined up with Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 6, it says, Let light shine out of darkness. That's what God said. He made his light shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. If you can't see the face of Christ, what are you going to miss out on? The brilliant knowledge of his glory. Can you see the face of Christ? Not with your physical eyes, but with the eyes of your spirit. Paul prayed that you could see. And then you go back to chapter 3, verse 18, and he talks about this seeing with unveiled faces, verse 18, 318, with unveiled faces, we contemplate, contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed as we look into the face of Jesus, into his image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If you can't see the face of Christ, what do you miss out on? But when you can see his face, and you can see his face in reality, the love he has for you as he gave his life for you, as he rose from the grave, the love he has for you, as he knows where you've fallen down, he knows where people has tripped you up in life. He knows where you've deliberately sabotaged yourself. But he doesn't look at you with disapproval. He looks at you with, with grace. He looks at you with mercy. And he wants to draw you to himself and heal those wounds and fill you up and pour his love into your heart. We're going to take one more moment. I want you to pray. It, It is prayer. It's meditation. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you simply to ask God, God, my Father, how do you see me? And then wait and listen and look and see what answer you get. Because prayer is a two-way thing, right? And he wants to speak to your heart. He desperately wants to speak to your heart because it's probably all dinged up. So let's close our eyes. And we're going to pray. And you just ask, Father God, how do you see me? And then you ask, Father God, how do you feel about me? And I pray that as you have prayed that and seen the answer, that you have seen the smile of God, received the embrace of God. Because you see, in a moment as you come to the table, this broken bread, this juice, this cup, represent how deeply you are loved that Jesus died for you so while you're seated there raise your hands God I love you Heavenly Father you're so lovable I love you thank you for loving me as you put your arms around yourself thank you that I can love me I can stand against accusations against my mistakes and I can love others 
as I have been able to love myself. And you can do that at home, guys. I would encourage you because that physical movement will help you internalize the truth of God for you. Let's stand together and let's worship, and you're invited to the Lord's table.